In today's episode of Let's Talk Love, I speak with Dr. Alexandra Solomon about her work on relational self-awareness, the course, Marriage 101, she teaches at Northwestern University, and about key skills we can all use for navigating conflict. Dr. Solomon also answers your relationship questions. Be sure to submit any questions you have regarding sex, love, and relationships, and I will do my very best to ask our experts for you. Dr. Solomon is one of my favorite relationship teachers. Enjoy. Welcome to the Let's Talk Love podcast, where we flip the script on outdated narratives and cliches about love and relationships. I'm your host, Robin Ducharme, founder of Real Love Ready. This podcast is for anyone who wants to be better at love, regardless of relationship status. We'll talk about the intimate connections in our lives and the challenges and complexities inherent in those partnerships. Through our no-holds-barred interviews with global experts, we'll gain insight about ourselves and learn new skills to improve our relationships. Because when we learn to love better, we make the world a better place. Are you ready for open and honest conversations about love? Let's get started. Hello and welcome to this episode of Let's Talk Love podcast. Today, I'm very excited to welcome our guest, Dr. Alexandra Solomon, to the podcast. Hello, Dr. Solomon. <laughs> Hi, Robin. How are you? <laughs> so incredibly happy to share this hour with you. Oh, likewise. <laughs> I, I love the chances that I have to get to connect with you. I feel the same way. I'm going to introduce you. Over the last two decades, Dr. Alexandra Solomon has become one of today's most trusted voices in the world of relationships and her work on relational self-awareness, which we're going to learn more about today, has reached millions of people around the world. Dr. Solomon is a licensed clinical psychologist at the Family Institute of Northwestern University. She's also on the faculty in the School of Education and Social Policy at Northwestern University where she teaches the internationally renowned course, Building Loving and Lasting Relationships, Marriage 101. Can't wait to learn more about that. In addition to writing articles and chapters for leading academic journals and books in the field of marriage and family, she's the author of two best-selling books, Loving Bravely and Taking Sexy Back. So I am just so incredibly happy to have you. And we've worked together um, about four or five times now in the past few years. And every time that I'm with you. I learned so much. You're just such a great teacher and therapist. Aww. So relatable. So that's what I, I know that people are going to get so much out of this episode. Um, so thank you so much for your time and your well, wisdom. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for that warm introduction. I, I appreciate that feedback and I'm, I'm glad to be here. Well, can we, can we start um, Dr. Solomon, <clears throat> you just giving us an introduction to your work and how you started out as a therapist and became a professor and teaching this course at Northwestern and writing your books. I would just love to hear a little bit about your journey on where you started and where you are now. 
Yeah. I mean, I really have from the beginning of my career, when, when I when I started off in graduate school, the model that I was trained under is this model called the scientist practitioner model. So from the first day of my doctoral program, I was taught to have one foot in the world of academia and one foot in the world of you know, application. And so I think I really took that message to heart. And I mm-hmm. have just stayed passionate in my career about switching hats. So I love the flow between spending some of my week in academia, right? Um, teaching and training, whether it's, you know, graduate students in marriage and family therapy, which I did for a decade, whether it's the marriage 101 course, or whether it's teaching and training clinicians who are out in the world, that all is one part of what I do. But then I also spend part of my week just in the trenches, sitting with individuals and couples, understanding themselves and their relationships. And then I spend part of my week figuring out, okay, so how do we take all of that and translate it into really usable, applicable skills for people out in the real world? And so conversations like the one that we're going to have and you know, social media is such a rich venue for kind of all of that translational work. And so that has been that ability to move between those spaces, all of which I treasure Um, I think it keeps me energized. It keeps me curious. And I think provides me with a ton of meaning around helping people love and be loved and understand who they are, you know, in these relationships. Mm -hmm. So your work is based, so much of your work is based on relational self-awareness. Can you describe what that means? Yeah. So at a certain point in my career, I realized that no matter which realm I'm in, you know, whether I'm teaching or writing or in therapy, or frankly, talking to my husband of 23 years, the through line was that I'm always doing that dance of inviting self-reflection that leads to different kinds of conversations between people. That idea that my relationship with myself becomes a foundation for my relationship with everybody else. So if I want the belief here, the relational self-awareness belief is if I want to have high quality relationships with others, I have to figure out how to cultivate that high quality, gentle, curious relationship with myself. First and foremost, that that arrow goes back and forth. My relationship with me shapes my relationship with you. And then how I engage with you teaches me more about myself. So that became clear to me a number of years ago. And so I have spent all this time now kind of refining and and operationalizing what relational self-awareness is, which is basically a set of tools and frameworks that we can use to, to enhance our relationships. And it's because, especially in our romantic relationships, we want something that is is of a completely different order than our grandparents wanted and needed, right? The framework around relationships today is so different. We talk about, I talk about this in terms of role-bound relationships. So historically, and still in many parts of the world today, intimate partnership is a highly role-bound arrangement. What it means to be a good husband is that you provide. What it means to be a good wife is that you hold down, you are a domestic goddess, right? And those- Mm -hmm. The clearer the roles, the less the wiggle room, right? And it's not that hard to meet those expectations. And I use the word husband and wife because historically those have been like these highly gendered roles, but that's not the world that most of us want to create now. We want soul to soul relationships, not role to role relationships. We want to feel deeply seen 
And we want to feel that our authentic self is what's coming forward in our relationships. So fine, let's have high expectations. But if we're going to have high expectations, we have to be willing to put in the work to be able to get there. It's not just about sitting on our phone long enough and swiping until we meet that right person. It's really rolling up our sleeves and working to become that right person. Yes. Wow. <laughs> yep. It's, it's hey, we're, we're, we're no longer um, in the role to role. It's soul to soul. That's so, and, and like you said, we're demanding we, so much more out of our intimate partnerships, right? We're, we're asking, we want so much out of this one person in our lives, which is also all those expectations. It's a bit, pretty big, heavy burden to put on each other. That's right. Well, and listen, by the way, even if, even if someone's like, wait a minute, no, I'm completely happy with a role to role relationship. Like just yes. give me, give me, <laughs> give me, we can't anymore, frankly. Right. Because the way in which the way that the economy is, right. The way in which the world has transformed, it is very, very different. Like the there, um, I just shared these numbers with my students this week in one half of heterosexual marriages, she out earns him one half mm-hmm. in 1960. It was like, Three percent. That is a dramatic. That is that. That is a dramatic shift that has happened in the blink of an eye. I mean, I know for young people, fifty or sixty years feels like a lifetime, but you know, sociologically, it's a very short amount of time that we have massively reconstructed the nature of how, you know, breadwinning and caregiving work. And that's in part because of feminism and sort of getting women, you know, into the public sphere. But it also is because those old structures just don't hold up anymore, right? Like high paying blue collar manufacturing jobs are just, the world has changed, right? The economy has changed. So in in lots of marriages, we really do need to flow seamlessly between striving, achieving, breadwinning, caregiving, tending, nurturing, like those roles, we have to have flexibility in those roles Otherwise, we're we're kind of fighting against reality. So I don't even know that a highly role bound gender traditional marriage is even possible for the vast majority of us. Even mm-hmm. if we're like, no, I'd be fine with that. I don't. It doesn't really work that way so much anymore. Yeah. So tell us about your marriage one hundred and one course. You teach at <laughs> Northwestern, and your course is called Building Loving Lasting Relationships Marriage One Hundred and One. Oh my gosh! Like I've said this before, I I wish that in university I took your course. <laughs> I mean, really, and it must, you said it's packed, right? Oh, it's so fun. And you know, Robin, we, we are in week two, we just finished up week two. So I'm like, I'm in the throes of it right now. And every, this is the 22nd year we've taught it. Like the first time we wow. taught it, I was a, I was a graduate student. So it's been part of my life for my entire career. And I just could cry. It's so special to me and it's so energizing. And, um, and yeah, and it is, I mean, I think because, that comment that you just made of wishing you'd had it. I've heard that comment hundreds, if not thousands of times, which is why I do things like write books, <laughs> run a podcast, yeah. post on Instagram, because, because this is content that we all need and deserve. And so, yes, these 108 college students get it packaged in a very unique way that we only do once a year. And I, you know, many, many students, you know, hundreds of students who want to get in the class can't, unfortunately. But for those who do get to go on this journey, it's pretty darn special. And, um, and it's not the only way, you know, to learn this content from me. But yeah, we have a great time. We are, you know, we toggle between 
um, didactic learning. So I'm sharing research, I'm sharing clinical wisdom, and then we're turning the lens on them. And they're sitting in small breakout groups with graduate students who are about to finish up their marriage and family degree program. Um, so they're clinically wow. trained and they sit in small groups of them and they just unpack all of this and they look at all of their, they look at their family system, their friendship dynamics. So I had office hours yesterday. I had three hours of office hours yesterday. And I had just students kind of streaming in and out. And I had these wonderful conversations about, I want closure and I don't have it. You know, my parents are getting divorced and I'm struggling. I, you know, I like this guy, but I don't know whether and how to tell him we're about to graduate. I don't know if we can do long distance. Like it just, you know, it's just, it's just a big old playground for me. I just think that's amazing that a hundred and some students, like you're, they're going through this course to learn how to build relationships and also getting therapy at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely perfect. <laughs> One of the students who came to office hours, she was like, so my friend took this class last year and she said, the class is great, but really you should take it just for the office hours. Just go to yes, office hours yes. and pick her, exactly. pick her brain. I was like, <laughs> yeah. So one of your, one of your quotes is that none of us fall in love so that we can experience conflict, but conflict is absolutely inevitable. And really this is, this is just such a true thing, but I think, I just think that's one thing that we are just not taught. Like you're thinking there's something really broken. If you're having conflict with your partner on a regular basis. <laughs> right. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> absolutely. It's absolutely normal. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, but really you talk about how it's really about we, how we manage conflict. It's not mm -hmm. about that. We have conflict. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's the how, and that's, you know, that is straight from the Gottman's research, right? That yeah. that is conflict will happen. How could it not? We don't, we don't marry ourselves. We don't partner with ourselves. There's <laughs> going to be space between my needs and your needs. There's going to be space between my need and what you're able to provide in any given moment. Frankly, there's going to be different perspectives, different opinions. There's going to be disappointment and misunderstanding. All of those things are going to happen. As you said, not because we're broken, not because we chose wrong, not because you must not be my soulmate, but because life is hard and we are all just so profoundly human, you know? Yes. But we don't, right? I, I mean, some of us, I think, grow up in homes where we watch our parents, you know, stand up for themselves without putting the other down or handle conflict in a mature way. Some of us do. And that's a massive blessing. And the wind is certainly at the backs of people who got to witness that firsthand when they were growing up. But, mo you know, the vast majority of us saw whatever, icy silence or, you know, loud voices that were, frankly, frightening for us when we were little, right? So we... We certainly learned about conflict when we were little, but we very likely did not learn how to handle it well. And so that just means, again, not that we're broken, but it just means we've got to take responsibility for that and, and tool ourselves, resource ourselves and spend some time learning how to do conflict. Because as you said, it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen. Yes. And I don't know if, so the, the last two episodes that I listened of yours were from your um, podcast, which is fantastic, called Reimagining Love. You have 10 skills for navigating conflict uh, and it's in two parts. And 
One of the stories you told at the beginning, I believe, either that's where you're loving bravely, because I've been reading your and listening to your books <laughs> and listening to your podcasts and everything. But one of the stories you tell, which I think is so relatable and like, well, I'm like, that could happen to any of us, right? You're, you have a couple that comes into your office. This is so common. And you said, okay, you've got these two people sitting in front of you and it's like, you, they've got bubbles above their heads, right? And the one bubble, the, the, the per, one person saying, all right, please explain the conflict, right? Mm-hmm. And they are, everything is about the other person. This is, da, 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 da. and then can you, can you just tell that from your perspective? <laughs> it's so funny and just so true. Yeah, it's so true. It's so, yes, that was from, that was for sure from the podcast. Yeah. The last two episodes are like thick, like a thick steak. You just got to like sit down, with I your know. like take some notes. I mean, we really, we went through it, right. 10, uh, 10 skills. And so, yeah, so, so the, you know, early on in the first episode, I'm basically framing out this idea that our default setting is to see the problem as lying within the other person. Some, sometimes I mean, some of us, our default setting is we believe the problem to lie within ourselves. Like that's the, th- we, when shame or blame creeps in, that's when we aren't practicing relational self-awareness because relational self-awareness mm-hmm. is all about my stuff plus your stuff equals our stuff, what I call the mm-hmm. golden equation of love. And every single conflict from the first moment all the way through a relationship, every single conflict can be mapped onto that equation. My stuff plus your stuff equals our stuff. But our default setting, usually until and we learn this, is to move into either blame, this relationship would be so much easier if you would be different, or shame, this relationship is struggling because I'm too broken, too damaged, too deficient. So right, so the story is the story of every couple who comes in for their first therapy session, which is above partner A's head is the thinking bubble that says, thank goodness we're here, because now this therapist and I are going to help partner B (laughs) understand that they're like fine in a lot of ways, but they just get... But the problem is that above partner B's head is the same damn thinking bubble. That's like, yep. okay, finally, this partner, this therapist will explain to partner A that if they would just stop doing whatever, whatever, this would be easier. And the, the, the thinking bubble is above each of their heads. And so then the work of therapy is that the therapist's job is basically to help them take on a systemic view of the story of, of the conflict of their conflict patterns, of their dances, to help them understand the choreography of the conflict. The more I do this, the more you do this. And the more you do this, the more I do this. And that is what the research in the field of couples therapy has found, in fact, that every brand of couples therapy has some tools and frameworks by which they teach couples to do exactly that. Every single brand, whether you're talking about Sue Johnson's emotion-focused therapy or John Gottman's approach to therapy or the you know, insight-oriented therapist, they all have ways of moving couples away from that very myopic, it's either your fault or my fault, into that relational frame of we're going back and forth, we're playing off each other, we end up triggering in each other our most dreaded scenario possible. And so that's the heart of therapeutic work. And it's what I, it's what I spend most of my time trying to, you know, support folks doing whether they're in my therapy office or on my Instagram feed is taking that relational 
approach. And I always end that example by saying that when I went a few years ago to see um, Michelle Obama and Oprah talking about Michelle Obama's book at the United Center, Mm. Michelle Obama told a story of going to couples therapy with Barack and having that very same thing, thinking like, oh, finally, this therapist will help Barack understand that he's just a little bit... And then she was humbled and she was like, oh shit. Okay. I guess I have to look at my participation, my role, my responsibilities. And so if Michelle struggles with it, you mm-hmm. know that we all struggle with it. <laughs> so something you've said is that one of the foundations of family therapy is when you change one part of the system, you change the system. So it, I'm sure it happens a lot. I mean, I'm in therapy by myself and we also do couples therapy. Um, so you, you must have people that come in individually and they're, they are with a partner. Can you, can you just please explain that principle on how, like, even if one person makes all these changes, you, you can change the relationship for the better, obviously. Mm-hmm, right. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, I, in fact, in the last few years have found myself spending a lot of time when I'm doing professional trainings for therapists, helping them take on that mindset because therapists who work individually with clients sometimes are at risk of not having that systemic frame, right? So if, so if, if you're my therapy client and all I know is your version of the story Mm. of the conflict with your husband, if that's all I hear it's really easy because you're my client. I'm in your corner. I'm team Robin. So I, as your therapist, am actually at risk of sort of siding a bit too much with you and sort of saying, you're right, Robin. Like I can imagine how hard that was. And I might, as your therapist, in fact, lose that relational frame. And so I teach therapists how Mm. to, even if they only ever have Robin in their office to think to themselves, what would Robin's husband's version of this story be? And even to go so far as to say to you in session, hey, Robin, you know, let's you and I, let's put ourselves in your husband's shoes. Like, how might he have experienced you in that moment? What do you think his version of the story might be? And it's not not to throw you under the bus, but just so that just to invite again that relational frame. Um, but yes, you are right that 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 when we work individually in therapy, we hold the power to improve our relationships. If what we're doing in our individual therapy is saying, hey, darling, dear therapist, can you help me understand why the hell I lost my shit when my husband did this? Mm. Versus, hey, darling, dear therapist, can (laughs) you please you know, pat me on the head and tell me I'm right and that my husband is a loser and that I'm a long-suffering unappreciated, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's, so that's really like where the rubber hits the road is, can we in our own individual therapy spaces, even hold on to that relational frame and ask our therapist to be with us in that dance of deep compassion for our struggles and deep accountability for our behavior, our choices, our mindset. Yeah. I took a lot of notes in the um, the last two podcasts that I listened to of yours about managing conflict and the skills for navigating the inevitable conflicts we're going to have. And the first thing you talk about is our inheritance, right? Mm-hmm. Our, it's our conflict inheritance of um, 
really just obviously what we learned from growing up, who our role models were um, and how they managed conflict, because that's really how we learn how to do it from how our parents did it. Right. That's right. That's right. Um, And so how do you transform? That was one thing that I was questioning. It Mm -hmm. is just about all of these lessons that you're teaching, right? About, but how do you transform your conflict inheritance? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. Because that's really what we need to do, right? It's like we can't necessarily change. Well, we well we can. That, that's the word. Transforming is changing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But you're right. Insight insight is not enough. Insight yes. on its own is not enough. So yes, the first uh, that first skill that I taught was about okay. So just look at your family of origin. Just look at the system that you grew up in and reflect on how did you see differences get handled. How did you see strong emotions? get handled? How did you see frustration get navigated? Like just that, you know, that sort of naming that bringing, Mm -hmm. because so often all of that stuff, what I call like your love template, all of the sort of early experiences that were formative, it kind of, it, it, it's like the, the goldfish in the water, right? We don't, we don't necessarily know to call it forth and name it and put words to it because it just was what it was. So insight is important knowing. Yeah. That's interesting. I grew up in a home with a ton of volatile conflict. I felt really scared a lot of the time and I bite my tongue because I get, I don't want to be anywhere near anything that was like that. That's insight. That's connecting. That's running the thread from the past to the present. It's making connection huge and essential. And as you're saying, that's not probably the transformation, you know, I mean, it leads to the transformation because now I can say to my partner, you know what I'm learning about myself? I bite my tongue a lot. Mm. And I think there's a way that it sells me. Well, it doesn't do me good because then I walk around with a painful tongue, but I think it also doesn't do you any good because then you don't, you don't get some of my truths, right? I put a smile on my face when really I actually have something to run by you or raise with you. And I wonder if you and I, I wonder if I'm selling us short because maybe we could do in this relationship conflict differently than what I saw growing up. And maybe I don't even give us a chance to get up to bat to try and do it differently because, because I just am doing I'm just doing the survival strategy that I grew up with, which is just keep the peace. Don't rock the boat, bite your tongue. Conflict is scary. And so that's when we start to move into transformation, right? Is I think I maybe wonder if we could try and do it differently. Like, could I practice with you (laughs) noticing when Mm. I have a concern and, and even if I'm going to bring it up perhaps in not a particularly graceful way, because I'm on a learning curve here, can I start to try in this relationship to do things differently. Cause I wonder if there's a shade of gray between conflict is terrifying and therefore we have to avoid it at all costs. I wonder if there might be a shade of gray in between there. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Yes. And it's so vulnerable and just raw, like, Whoa, I, I think I'm having that conversation, like with my husband yeah. and going, Oh, that takes a lot, but yeah, that's what it, mm-hmm. that's, what's required. If you want things to get better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So one of this, you, you shared the stat with John Gottman's research, 69, is that, is that a correct percentage? 69% of the stuff that couples fight about is not solvable. 
that's a really high percentage. I'm like, oh my God. Oh, like, like I, w- I was really shocked to hear this statistic. I was, I was like 69%. You hadn't heard Why of it? Well, not that 69%. Like, I mean, I, uh-huh. I've definitely heard that the stat that, I mean, there's so many things that we fight about you can't solve. Yeah. But that in itself is so disempowering too. <laughs> it's like, well, what the heck? It's like, oh my God, that's like, that, and that's when you want to avoid the conflict. You can't solve it. What the heck's the point? You can't solve it anyways. <laughs> <laughs> but why do you, why is it that's, that's such a huge percentage of our issues? Because like, I would think you just keep on going, keep on like, yeah, we're going to get this solved. That would be that's your persistence. <laughs> I think if we just try harder, if we just do more <laughs> totally. of the same. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you're right. I think it can be frustrating for those of us who, I, I mean, I think it's, I think we, I think sometimes in relationships, we end up asking the wrong question. Like we say, like, can this be solved when really it's about, can we just relate to it differently? Like that, that's mm-hmm. still, I mean, in a way, in a way, perhaps that is solving the problem because maybe the problem gets solved by everyone taking a different stance vis-a-vis the problem or telling a different story about the problem, like, or, or finding ways to be actually appreciative of the difference between us. I think, I think what Gottman is saying is a lot of these problems have to do with temperamental differences, gender role, socialization differences, you know, um, values differences, like things that, that feel kind of hardwired, a bit more essential, right? Not particularly fungible. So I think that's what he is saying is there's just, there's not a solution because it, because every, because it would require deep, deep, deep inauthenticity that wouldn't really be a sustainable change. So maybe what we need to do is just say, you know, redefine what solving looks like. Cause I think sometimes a problem does get solved when you remember that the very same quality that drives you nuts about your partner is the very same quality that drew you to your partner. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. I think, I think another big thing would be like you said, all those things. And also like just how you were raised, we, we were all raised so differently by two different people or maybe more or less. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and that, so yes, you, that is your inheritance and that is where you came from. And a lot of, I, I believe a lot of who we are is like how we were raised. Like That's you right. can't change that. That's nothing. It was out of your control really, but our beliefs yeah. and every like, yeah. I so think you're really we, right. I think you're really right. If, if we, if we pulled Todd in here, he would talk to you about, you know, he calls it the alley tax. I'm, I'm alley to my family and friends. He calls it the alley tax. He's like, there are, there's a set of things that I, that are just going to be like the, the, the pee under the mattress for me, the little pebble in my shoe, because I am married to you, Allie. Like there's just, there's the, it's the price I pay for loving you is that know, every few months, there's like a parking ticket that is completely avoidable. <laughs> every six months, a credit card goes missing. Like I am, you know, like there are these things that he would never, it would never happen to him. But part of loving me is remembering that for all of the great things about loving me, it also means tolerating some things that, that just, you know, I sin in ways that he doesn't sin. Right. And so, so remembering, so I think that's part of it also. And you're right. And the and the, right, he's never going to, he's never, there's, there's no solution to the fact that I grew up in a, you know, um, I grew up in quite a different family than he grew up in quite a bit more complicated family than he grew up in, which affected me in 
lots of ways and led me to become a therapist. There you are. Uh, uh-huh. And so there's, and that you're right. That's, there's nothing to solve for there. It just means that yeah. I have a particular landscape of whatever tender yeah. spots and vulnerabilities. that is different than his. One of the um, five, the fifth way that you can manage, help manage conflict in your partnership is hating the moment, not the person. Mm-hmm. This one was, I was like, that is so good <laughs> because, because really you can like, this is, you can so personalize it. This, right. This is what we're, you could yeah. say it's about this person. It's about the next person, right. not about the issue. Right. And it's like, you're reframing. And you said, it's shifting from hating your partner to hating the moment. Mm-hmm. It's you and I against the frustration, you and I, not you and I against each other. Yeah. So it's just taking, because I, because I think when we are in conflict, like, like you were, like you said, we're going into the, it's like the child mind, right? The mm-hmm. fight, flight, freeze, or fawn. And mm-hmm. so that is our child. That is like our survival mode. Yeah. And that's why you need to take a pause. And, and then almost like step back and be like, okay, it's the issue that I'm, I've got issue with here. Not, it is you, but it's because you did the thing. It's the issue between us, not just you. Someone sent me, someone sent me a DM and she was like, but what if my partner actually did a thing that made me mad? And it is, it is him because he's the one that did the thing. I know, I know, I know. (laughs) Yeah. That is true, right? We do, we do do things that are harmful or thoughtless, you know, or create pain in our partner. And we are responsible for those things, but it, but the, the invitation here is just to, to separate the person from the behavior, right? Which is sort of a different way of saying it, right? Like I'm so upset about this thing that happened and yes, you're the one who did it, but you are also more than this behavior. You are a good person who did a thing that was shitty. And that's, that can be hard to hold. And it's exactly for the reason you're saying, Robin, is that we move into this child mindset and children have no idea how to discern between the person and the behavior. So it is that kind of more, just the younger framework of just, you know, being so mad at the person and having a hard time holding on to. It's just so unfortunate that we're in a situation where my partner, who is a good and decent person, did something that is so made such a mess. Yeah. A a principle that you talk about as well is you say in conflict with words, it's, it's about the words and tone used to hurt, to hurt our partner. The, but the arrow goes both ways. What does Mm -hmm. that, am I, am I in the, am I in that context when you're talking about this principle about how the arrow goes both ways? Mm -hmm. I didn't quite understand that. Like, I, I mean, I do understand on this I, I guess it's like more of a soul level or a spiritual level, or energetic level. Like if I hurt you, I'm hurting myself. Is okay. that really what you, what you mean by that? When you're talking was, about the arrow going both ways. I think it was, I think it was, was about the idea that the language, you know, when we get upset, we, this was the part of the um, episode where, where I'm talking about intimacy, promoting language choices yes. and intimacy, blocking language choices. And there's a way that when we are upset, our language becomes more intimacy blocking. We say things like always and never and shouldn't. And anybody knows so I go through this whole list of things that we say because we're upset that end up making a hard thing harder. 
But the arrow going in the other way means that by choosing those words, the always and the never, we actually end up amplifying our hurt, right? So my language becomes always and never because I am hurt. But it's also the case that because I'm saying always and never, and I'm using this kind of escalated, big sweeping language, I'm actually getting myself more upset, Mm -hmm. right? By not tempering, by not pausing and tempering myself and challenging myself around, is it always, or is it this time? And this time really did hurt by not challenging that I'm kind of spiraling myself upwards in addition to pushing you away because the always and never language, the, my therapist says language, like all that language, that set of language choices that pushes our partner away, just, it just creates more distance, more tension and guarantees that we aren't going to, going to get the thing we need. And usually when we're in conflict, the thing that we need is just for our partner to say, I get it. (laughs) Your perspective makes sense. You Mm -hmm. are not crazy. I can see where you're coming from. Like, that's what we need. But sometimes we, we make all this like hullabaloo, our language is getting extreme and we're working ourselves up and we're pushing our partner away. Yeah. Does that make sense? It it, it totally makes sense. Yeah. So what, one of the, obviously one of the most um, important things I think is repair, right? (laughs) Once Mm -hmm. once you've got you're in a conflict, it's um, apologizing and forgiving. And one of the things you do say is that shame can, it's, can be a big blocker when it comes to repair. Yeah. Can you, can you talk about that? This is a hard, this is a hard one. And it's one that I think we're probably going to have to go back to in a future episode because it was right. It was one tenth of the, well, the last few skills were all about repair, but those are all like apology, forgiveness, um, kind of like turning back towards each other. Those are all really big topics. But yeah, one of the points that I wanted to make was about shame that, you know, if, if I've done something that you have found hurt, if I've done something that's hurt you, and then you say, Hey, Alexandra, that thing that you did really hurt me. If holding up that mirror and asking me to look at my behavior, if that kicks off shame inside of me, And takes me into a place of, God damn, I suck as a person and see, I knew I couldn't do this relationship and she's going to leave me. And this is what always happens. And my dad used to say that I was a blah, blah, blah. And, you know, if I take it to that place of this happened because I am broken, then Mm. I'm in shame. And I can guarantee you that there's no way in hell I can look you in your eyes and say to you, Robin, I'm sorry, I fucked up. I can't, I can't say that to you because if I'm in shame, I can't be in connection. And so unfortunately, shame ends up being one of those things that can block repair. So now you are left with the hurt feelings because I did something that hurt Mm -hmm. you and I'm nowhere to be found because I'm, you know, I'm kind of hunkered down. I'm in my shell and I'm having this whole pity party about what an F up I am and how I don't deserve good things in my life. So you're lonely and I'm, you know, beating myself up. So shame yep. blocks repair. 
Well, um, I, I just, I want to invite everybody to listen to those two episodes of all of your episodes, but those two in particular, Dr. Solomon were so powerful. And I mean, I have to listen again and again, because there's just so many, mm. like, it's like you said, it's like going in and having a big steak. You got to sit there, <laughs> listen. I had to press pause, write my notes, reflect, like go back no, <laughs> because no. And, and, and also the worksheet that you have on your, on your website with everything. It's, it's really good. So I just got so much out of it. And I know that I'm going to be practicing more and more. And just the way you teach the, the principles, it's, um, this is all about using those tools. Mm-hmm. So, well, thank you. I, um, those were two episodes that I wanted to do for a long time. And, you know, as people listen, I want them to, I, you know, it's a little bit unusual for me to go top, you know, when you're talking about skills, you're kind of going top down, right? You're talking about behaviors and that's sort of a top down approach. A lot of times Mm -hmm. in my work, we go bottom up. We talk about healing deep wounds and sort of like different language and different behavior flowing from deeper healing. But I like the idea because, because we all learn differently and because we all, you know, are at different moments in our journey, I do like sometimes just a top down, like do this, don't do this, stop with this, try this instead, like the yes. skills, because sometimes the skills and actually the, the research in couples therapy has shown this, that sometimes doing things differently actually does create deep healing. It's not just all about excavating our wounds. It also sometimes is a little bit of this, like, it's not fake it till you make it. It's like, do something different, watch how your partner responds differently. and then realize that you actually are more skilled than you thought you were. You're more resilient than you thought you were. So there's ways in which those skills can create deeper healing and can shift things between people. Even if it feels a little bit like we're just talking about do's and don'ts, try this, you know, but it's so thank you. I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you liked them. Oh, definitely. So we've got, I've got some community questions that I'd like to ask for um, the last bit of our time together. I love your community. Your community okay. asks great. I love questions. They do. The They've got great questions oh, and we all get a lot out of the answers. So, um, so this first question is, I enjoy sex when I'm having it, but feel self-conscious about initiating it. How do I get more comfortable initiating things with my partner? Mm, it's a wonderful, that's a really wonderful question. There is, um, I want to just first validate there is tenderness in the ask, right? In some ways it's easier to have our partner initiate because there's no, there's no synapse that has to be crossed. If you're initiating with me, all I have to do is say, yes, if I'm initiating with you, I have to get brave and I'm not in control over how you respond. So I want to just validate and normalize that in at one level, initiating is difficult because it is, it is vulnerable because I'm all I can control is my initiation. I can't control how you're going to respond. So that's one layer of it. If this person, if this member of the Real Love Ready community has been socialized in the feminine, if they are a woman, then initiating puts her face-to-face with some really gnarly old messages around women who want sex. You know, I mean, mm, I think we sort of are yep. raised on this tightrope of like, don't do this because then you're going to be perceived as a prude, but also don't do this because then you'll be perceived as a slut, like that sort of prude slut, like what would be just about right kind of a thing that we all spent time. Well, I shouldn't say we all, we oftentimes feel like we have lived in position in, in relation to that, 
you know, prude slut dichotomy. So then we never really did learn how to actually just initiate from a place of here's what I would love. Are you available for it? Right. It's all about how will I be perceived? What would be just the right amount of desire to express in this moment without being seen as too much or too little of, of this. Then the last thing I would say is sometimes what blocks initiation is a downloaded inherited story that there's like a right, good, sexy way to seduce a partner that we Mm. ought to, we ought to look a certain way. We ought to sound a certain way. And so that of course becomes a barrier because then even in the initiation, it's like a performance. It's like, how do I, I, you know, I'm doing this in order to come across a particular way rather than initiation that just is whatever feels, feels real and authentic in the moment. Right. I mean, initiation can be silly. Initiation can be sultry. Initiation can be playful. There isn't really a right wrong, but, but I think a lot of us have a sense inside of ourselves that like, there is a way to do this. Right. And Mm. I don't know that I am doing it right. Yeah. The next question is, is actually quite a, is how do we raise sexually healthy kids? That's a big question. I mean, let's take two more hours and (laughs) (laughs) that's a heavy one. I, well, I, it's just being honest, right. But obviously age appropriate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it starts with, it starts with understanding our own sort of sexual inheritance, right? Whatever yeah. our kids benefit from our healing, you know, period, yes. whether that's sexual healing, relational healing, conflict, whatever we are working on healing, we are going to show up for conversations with our kids differently, more calm with just a bit more like spaciousness around it. So start with yourself. Mm -hmm. It's a great, I mean, there are wonderful resources. Like there are wonderful um, sex educators who really specialize. One of the, one of them is sex, um, sex positive families. I love Jennifer Littner's work. Um, There are just a lot of content creators who help families because you know what we cannot, especially if you're in the U S you cannot rely on the American um, public school system to provide sex education for your kids. It's, you know, what they're going to get from school, you are going to have to undo um, or at least, at least fill in, but very likely also undo. And then the last thing I would say about sexually healthy kids is I love what I've been hearing a lot of in the last few years, which is parents modeling consent in non-sexual ways, like just teaching their kids when you walk in for Thanksgiving, you know, and you see all these extended family members saying like, Hey, do you, you know, there's uncle, you know, uncle Joe, do you want to do a fist bump, a handshake, a hug, a high five, like giving kids choices around how do you want to be touched by this relative? It's Mm -hmm. obviously not sexual, but what you're doing is giving these little micro lessons about actually you are the authority around when and how and with whom you experience touch. And so there's lots of ways that parents, even with like, even to ask your kid, are you, you know, do you want to hug? Can I hug you? I would love to hug you. Like just that kind of modeling that you're, you have autonomy over your body. It is not, yes, you know, so I think that's a really, really important, subtle, non-sexual way of, of promoting sexual health in kids. I really like that. The next question is, I feel pressured to have sex with my boyfriend. When I'm not in the mood, he's always hinting that we should have sex or that he wants to. It makes me feel uncomfortable. How should I approach this? 
Well, I absolutely want you to approach it. I absolutely mm-hmm. do because because leaving it leaving it unapproached, leaving it ignored, um, is just going to create a situation of resentment, very likely in both of you, right? You are going to keep resenting that your boyfriend, um, that, that you experience your boyfriend as pressuring and your mm-hmm. boyfriend is likely to resent, um, that, that you, that he's making bids that you aren't responding to. And every sexual problem that a couple has is a couple problem. And I want the two of you to approach this as a team because pressure and, and pleasure don't go very well together. And so I can imagine this is really this cycle of feeling pressured is really shutting. It it creates the conditions for you to shut down and pull away. So I would love for the two of you to kind of sit shoulder to shoulder and look together at this question of, we know, what are we each wanting and needing around our sex lives? Um, and I love this question of like, what are we wanting from sex? Like, what are we craving? Because one hypothesis I have is if, if what your boyfriend is craving is connection and for lots of men, they've been socialized. There's one appropriate pathway to connection and that is sex. Mm-hmm. Then you guys are missing an opportunity to talk about all of the ways in which the two of you could feel connected that, that some of which you might be really interested in. If what he wants is connection with you, could you snuggle? Could you dance? Could you take a bath together? Could you go for a walk? Could you watch a show? Like, is there a more robust template of things that, that you could avenues for connection that would help that bucket of his, I want to feel close to you. I want to feel, um, I want to feel like you're attracted to me, whatever it is that he's wanting in that bid. Um, are there lots, I want the two of you to have lots and lots of menu options besides just sex. And by the way, sex, especially if we're talking about a heterosexual couple for heterosexual couples, very often sex equals penis and vagina sex. And that ends up being, that ends up potentially being a barrier because perhaps you aren't available for penis and vagina sex, but perhaps you'd be really available for a makeout session and a hand job, you know, or like maybe there are mm-hmm. other things that if there was just a richer menu of options that could count as sex, then you, then you'd be able to respond to those bids. Like, sweet. Yes. I would love to, you know, whatever, fool around for a while. I'm not available for penis and vagina intercourse tonight, but I am available for some of this or a little bit of this, or what if you get, you know, have this and I have that, right. We don't have to always want, it's unrealistic to want the exact same thing at the exact same frequency for the duration of a relationship. It's not going to happen. And I, and I, I wonder if like you were saying, I think, I wonder if there's a disconnect in their intimacy outside the bedroom. Well, for sure. That's right. So that's that, right. That she may yeah. be just like, you know, it's just not all about sex for her. She's like, I'm feeling very disconnected in these ways in our relationship, which is why I'm really not that interested in the bedroom. Could be. Right. right. She might be like, maybe ask me about my day first. Let's start yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, that is, you know, it is, it is a stereotype, but it's a stereotype because it is, you know, I have, I have had this in my work many times for heterosexual couples where he wants, you know, he wants sex and that helps him feel connected and she wants to feel connected and that helps her want sex. So that is the cosmic joke of heterosexuality. And what- <laughs> Cosmic joke. I like that. So the last question um, is my partner has trouble expressing love in words. 
and it really bothers me. What can I do about it? Ah, that's sweet. I, um, yeah. sweet and I can imagine how tender it is. I would love for this person, I would love for you to ask your partner, like what makes it difficult? Because I wonder if there is a deep well of compassion that might open up for you if you better understood what gets in your partner's way, you know? Um, because I imagine that in the absence of hearing loving words, you're at risk of making up a story that's like, mm. maybe they don't love me very much. Maybe I'm settling, you know, I'm not getting this need met. If you had a deeper understanding of what makes spoken language for your partner more difficult, it might help. And it might invite within your partner, a sense of curiosity of like, okay, I, I get why historically I have not been good at this, but damn, my partner wants more loving words from me. I can learn that. I can challenge myself. I can stretch. I want to love this partner in the way that they want to feel love. So I will stretch, even if it makes me blush or stammer or doesn't totally feel natural I can, I can grow in that way. And then I would want the community member to really celebrate any small win, right? So the first few times, if your partner does commit to trying a little bit more verbal affirmation, I want you to celebrate the hell out of whatever it is that you get, mm -hmm. even if it's clunky, even if it's blushy, even if it's not particularly glamorous, like celebrate it because that's how we get more of what we want. So the last thing I would want this person to do is be like, well, finally you said it, but only because <laughs> now, you know, like then, well, then you're not going to get much more of it. So, yeah. Yeah. oh my goodness. Well, I, our time is, I, I can't believe the time goes by so fast every time we're talking, but I just want to thank you so much, Dr. Solomon. Tell us what you're working on these days. I know your podcast, you're so busy um, producing amazing content with reimagining love. And what else are you working on these days? I mean, between that and marriage 101, uh, yeah. and you know, the, that, that is really, there's a fullness right now around all of that. So yeah, that would be what I would, um, you know, where I would want people to, um, kind of dive in a bit deeper is with, is with, um, the podcast and yeah. my website, the website's got lots and lots of, um, of resources also, if people are kind of new to my work and want to, you know, feel their way in a little bit, the, the website and my Instagram feed, um, you know, those are places, but yeah, those there's, um, you know, there's things on the horizon that we're not quite talking about yet, but there's always, you know, as you know, this realm, it's just a fascinating time to be fascinated by relationships, right? There's so many technology, um, makes so many different ways of teaching and engaging possible. And sometimes it's hard for me to decide what do I want to do next? What do I want to try next? What, you know, so there's well, um, always, it's yeah. Well, I know just tuning into your podcast, I like I know I've learned so much. And every time I listen and learn from you, I'm able to take these things into my own marriage. And so I, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for everything you're doing in the world. It's beautiful work and it, it's very impactful. So thank you. Thank you. I, re <laughs> I receive that. I receive that, Robin. Thank you so much. It, it means a lot for me to hear. And I love the way I love, you know, I have so much respect for what you do. You are so 
um, thoughtful and intentional about the people that you bring to your community and you do it in ways that it just, it's just so sophisticated and so well done. There's nothing, you know, nothing for you is ever feels like schlocky or pulled together last minute. Like you are just intentional. And so I, I, I know that's why your community is loyal to you and trusts you because you bring them good people in thoughtful ways and you, and in ways where both your experts and your community, I know feel deeply held and supported. So keep doing what you're doing because it's, it's wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Solomon for everything. And we'll definitely be seeing you soon. Much love. <laughs> Much love. <laughs> bye bye. Bye. Please visit realloveready.com to become a member of our community. Submit your relationship questions for our podcast experts at reallovereadypodcast at gmail.com. We read everything you send. Be sure to rate and review this podcast. Your feedback helps us get you the relationship advice and guidance you need. The Real Love Ready podcast is recorded and edited by Maya Anstey. Transcriptions by otter.ai and edited by Maya Anstey. We at Real Love Ready acknowledge and express gratitude for the Coast Salish people, the stewards of the land on which we work and play, and encourage everyone listening to take a moment to acknowledge and express gratitude for those that have stewarded and continue to steward the land that you live on as well.